0: Welcome to the Green Sheets podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation about IP focused on the issues, challenges and stories relevant to those who create and manage intellectual property. In series two, we continue to discuss best practice for monetizing and protecting IP in the new post-COVID-19 world. Intellectual property disputes can be complicated, confusing and expensive if mishandled. This episode of the podcast features Bill Lister and Chris Thomas, specialist IP solicitors who help clients in the UK and around the world manage IP disputes in a commercially and legally sensible way. Chris and Bill discuss how to prevent disputes and what to do if they arise.
1: Thanks, Charlie. My name is Bill Lister. I'm a solicitor, having spent uh, my initial career practicing as a barrister, and I'm a partner in Apple Yard Lees. I'm joined today by uh, my colleague Chris Thomas, who is also a solicitor. Chris?
2: Thanks, Bill. Yes, I have a background in dealing with uh, litigation and I'm currently practicing the area of IP disputes, so covering a range of disputes, really any dispute which involves intellectual property and may end up a court.
1: Chris and I are going to talk today about generally intellectual property disputes. We're going to do this today because during the last 16 to 18 months of lockdown, intellectual property disputes have become far more prevalent and I think far more worrying for our clients. So the first question, I
2: think, exactly what is an intellectual property dispute and what does it address? Right. So I think the first place to start is, well, what's a dispute? And really, you're talking about where you have a relationship with a third party, which is broken down in some way, can't be resolved through normal commercial discussions and when you need to involve a solicitor to assist with that dispute.
1: The dispute can be of any sort, really. It can be the infringement of either a registered or an unregistered right, or it could be a dispute concerning rights under a license or distributorship agreement where the uh, licensor has granted rights to a third party to sell their product under their branding. So this might involve disputes regarding registered trademarks or unregistered trademarks, what lawyers call passing off. That's passing off your business as being associated with somebody else's business. It might be a patent dispute. It might be a registered design dispute or an unregistered design dispute. There's a subtle difference between a registered design and an unregistered design. It could be a trade secret dispute. Therefore, as an owner of a right, the most important thing one has to do, first of all, is decide what rights do you own and what rights are being infringed, by whom are they being infringed and how are they being infringed? Chris, what would you say is the first thing that someone should do uh, who thinks they might have a problem like this?
2: The first thing to do is to have an in- internal discussion within the business about exactly what the problem is. You need to, I think, have an internal plan about specifically what problem is being caused to your business so you can identify what the threat is, how it affects your rights, and what the commercial risk is to you. So you're in a position to assess how exactly you want to deal with it and what kind of cost you'd be willing to incur to try and resolve it through the use of solicitors. I think it's also important from within a business for
1: the business owners or the directors to take a decision at the absolute outset as to what actually they, they want to achieve out of it? What's their commercial goal? Is it to merely stop the infringers dead in their tracks to preserve their business, or do they want compensation? Because this very much will affect the strategy, I think, that they'll pursue. Compensation is obviously always very important because if an IP right is infringed, then there is likely to be a loss to your business. But often, the best result might just simply be stop them. Because if you want to stop them and stop them fast, limiting your strategy in, in that respect is often quite a good idea.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that what a lot of people will consider when they're thinking about a dispute is the financial aspect, what kind of compensation you may get. But often the most important remedy is what we would call an injunction, where if it goes all the way to court, it, it's an order which either requires a party to do something or stops them from doing something. And when you write a letter to the other side as a solicitor, quite often what you're asking them to do or what you're requiring them to do is to cease infringing. And if you get that as a resolution, that's often the most the most important remedy you can get.
1: I think that's what American lawyers call a cease and desist letter. I mean, in in the UK, we talk about cease and desist letters, but it's not really an English concept, although it does sum up what the letter is intended to do to get someone to cease the infringing activity and desist, that is, not do it again. What's important in the UK, uh, unlike in the American system, however, is that we're under an obligation imposed on lawyers by something called the practice direction, pre-action conduct to really set out the bones of your case in your initial letter so that the other side can understand what is the case they're expected to answer. So a single page letter, most cases won't do. You need to explain what rights you own, how you own them, how the rights come to vest in you, what the other side are doing how you say that what the other side are doing constitutes an infringement of your rights which particular rights it infringe and exactly what you want out of them and you need to make this really quite clear so in an all singing all dancing letter of claim We would enclose draft undertakings, which could be two or three pages long, which would include to stop doing the infringing act, not to do it again, to not encourage any third party to do it, to assign any domain names, which may include any infringing trademarks to you, to send you any infringing copyright works. And then setting out some disclosure of the amount of turnover and profit they have made from the infringing activity, so that you can form a very rough idea as to what sort of scale that compensation might take. I mean, if they've made diddly squat out of that infringement, you may decide that compensation is not a path worth going down. But if it's clear that they've been trading for some time and have made some serious money out of it, then you might want to be asking for compensation either on the basis of the net profit they have made or damages to yourself. And damages to yourself could just seem to be a royalty on what they've been selling. But equally, if a sale made by them is a sale lost to you, and you've therefore lost an income stream, you might well want to calculate what that might be and claim that from them.
2: Yeah, well, I think with a a letter of claim, this is the first thing that a solicitor will generally do when faced with a dispute after receiving your instructions as a client and where you've explained to us that the other side, infringing your IP rights in some way, we will write a letter of claim with undertakings, as Bill has said. And in terms of what is very useful to have in order to be able to draft that, certainly, I think a brief chronology with some key dates is a very good place to start, particularly if a dispute has been going on for some time. If you're talking about a dispute in relation to registered IP rights, then obviously, we would be looking at the registrations that you have. But it's also important, I think, with any IP dispute to get an idea of how long you've been trading under a particular IP right. So if you're talking about a trademark, how long have you been trading under a particular brand name? If you're talking about a design, when was it first created? It's very important to have a record of when you first started using your rights, because that can affect your rights and the other side's rights in an IP dispute
1: you can ask for is an undertaking to allow the publication of the settlement. Now, this is a, certainly a right that the courts have got to order publication, but asking for it at the outset is, is actually quite a good idea. As, of course, one would ask also for delivery of any stock they've got, and if they're making products which infringe, asking for delivery of all their tooling as well, because their tooling will also indirectly infringe your intellectual property rights. But one of the ultimate awesome most important parts of this initial letter is we really to flush out what their case, if anything, is. And The trouble is, and I say this to all my clients, if you are dealing with an infringer, infringers are often just simply completely unreasonable individuals, and in some cases, not all, but in some cases, there's not much difference between infringement and outright theft. So there's nothing that any lawyer can do to prevent somebody scrunching up your letter of claim and simply dropping it in the bin. I want had a letter of claim. I sent it by fax, and it came back to me two days later. Somebody had photocopied it, scored out the side of the letter which had my text on, uh, and written some quite choice Anglo-Saxon on the reverse side, and sent this back to me, thinking that this would actually be quite a good stratagem. But what's important is that you also are bound by the practice of pre-action conduct and just simply scoring out a letter and writing some Anglo-Saxon on the reverse uh, won't help your case when it comes to the judge. In fact, the judge is very likely to take an adverse view, firstly as regards credibility, but also the judge may impose cost sanctions or other sanctions on you. So under the Pax of Conduct, you need to actually set out what, if any, case you have. I would always advise the recipient, if they can make an offer, do make an offer because there's always a huge irrecoverable cost to fighting these disputes. And if, for instance, the complaint is that you, as the alleged infringer, are using someone else's trademark or someone else's branding, it may be possible for you to rebrand. Over a period of time, you might need three months, you might need six months, you might need 12 months. But if you can rebrand, it's often worth just making that offer. That might be enough to make the entire problem and cost hemorrhage go away. Or if you're producing a widget, which the other side, say, infringed their patent, their design right, or even their copyright, offer to redesign the widget over a reasonable period of time. And that might also work. What often does work on, on both sides is actually offering an early concession. For instance, an early concession in a letter of claim that a IP owner might make is to set out all the under, three pages of undertakings that they want from the fringer, but say, you know what, if you offer me some basic cease and desist undertakings, some basic ones uh, within, what, five days? I'll waive my rights to damages and waive my rights to costs, and I will just take the the undertakings. Or you might say, no, tell you what, I'll waive my right to damages, but I do want my costs because I've been kept out of pocket. And again, that can encourage an infringer to say, you know what, is this really worth it? Is the game worth a candle? I'll take that. I don't want to get involved in a dispute as to damages. I might offer costs. I might not offer costs depending on what my legal advice is, but I just really want out of this. The trouble is, for a proprietor's point of view, at that initial early stage, there's no magic button that can be pressed to get you your cost back. You can only really get your cost back as a right if you actually sue and win. Otherwise, it's part of the negotiation process. So it should probably be something that you're prepared to waive as a concession fairly early on just to get the case settled if compensation for you isn't the most important part of the case. Chris, what do you think? What's your your experience?
2: Yeah, I, I entirely agree. I think that what can sometimes happen where you have a letter of claim written and you instruct solicitors to provide a response if you choose to instruct solicitors to do so, The solicitor's job really is to, in a formal letter of response, is to set out your best case uh, in an open letter, by which I mean try and highlight any weaknesses in the claim against you and also identify any perhaps any counterclaims you've got. The difficulty with that approach, if that's the only approach, is that it can sometimes help to kind of entrench a dispute because the claimant, as we call them, has instructed solicitors because they think their rights are being infringed and they are expecting or hoping for an outcome from that initial letter. If your only response is to write back and deny a claim, which is not uncommon and is really the sort of, if you like, this kind of standard thing that happens where disputes end up in court, then it can help the parties or can lead to both parties essentially feeling that the other side are being unreasonable. And I think that certainly it's worth considering as soon as you're in receipt of a claim, what is an acceptable commercial outcome from this? And as Bill said, look at what practical concessions you can make to resolve a dispute at an early stage before incurring the costs of going to court. And I think, as Bill says as well, something to be aware of is that before a claim goes to court, there is no right to recover legal costs. So as a defendant or somebody who's in in receipt of a letter of claim, there is an opportunity to try and resolve most, if not all, of the claims against you without incurring a significant liability for costs, simply by being practical and taking a view on where you may be able to compromise to, to resolve a dispute. And obviously that cuts both ways. So it's one for the person sending the letter to be aware of as well. In terms of how you do that, Bill, what, would you generally recommend an open approach if you, if you want to make an offer or would you consider other, other routes?
1: I mean, given that these exchange of letters are likely to be the first document in a judge's bundle at trial, if you're going to make a concession, have it up there, up front. Although you can write letters without prejudice, save as to the issue of costs, nevertheless, sometimes you want the judge to see at the outset that you're being reasonable, you're not the ogre that the other side are painting you as, and that you did try and settle it. The courts are very keen on court time and court resources not being wasted. And if you're seen to be actually trying to settle the dispute in accordance with what the civil procedure rules call the overriding objective, then you're going to earn brownie points, quite frankly, with the judge. So if you're a claimant and you would say to the other side, look, tell you what, if you offer me undertakings to effectively cease and desist uh, within one week, two weeks, whatever. And if you do that, then I will forgo my right to damages. Then you want that up front. You want that in your open letter so the judge can see it. So the judge can see that if it is refused by the defendant, uh, then it's the defendant who's being unreasonable, not the claimant. I think that's really important to get the judge on your side from the very outset. And obviously, if you're a defendant, if you're going to write a letter back saying, well, actually, I've not infringed on any of your IP rights. You've not got any rights. You may want to say in your open letter back, but you know what? I don't want this dispute. It distracts me from my business. It's expensive. I'm not going to recover the cost even if I win. So look, tell you what, I'm over a three, six, nine, 12-month period. I'm going to offer to 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 do X, Y, Z to change it on condition that you let allow me a period to sell off my stock. As long as I can sell off my stock, I'm fine making changes. And you know what? Many claimants will accept that because claimants will be told, OK, you can fight, you can win, but it's going to take you 12, 18, even 24 months. There's going to be stuff that you're not going to recover. And indeed, damages are often quite difficult to prove. Just take what you can now. So, yeah, I completely agree with you, Chris. There is another decision, however, before the whole thing kicks off in litigation, which the claimant needs to take, and that's exactly who they're going to sue. Most people have heard of the corporate veil, that is, uh, directors and shareholders can hide behind their limited company. But that's not always the case, in fact. And there has been a very recent case indeed called Lifestyle Equities Against Ahmed and Others where the Court of Appeal held that pre-existing law, which was set out in a case called MCA Records and Charlie Records, actually was part of English law. And what MCA Records and Charlie Records said was where a director treats the company as his or her alter ego. That is, they run the company personally. They don't run the company through its usual constitutional organs, such as uh, board meetings, annual general or uh, extraordinary general meetings. But they issue uh, diktats to the workforce and the workforce treat those diktats as binding and carry them out. And the workforce consider the director, who may not, of course, be a registered director. He or she may be a shadow director. Then that director can be personally liable with the company on a joint and several basis. And if you as the claimant think that a company, let us say, with a single director shareholder does run a company on that basis, it's often worth writing not just to the company but also to the individual concerned, explaining why you think that individual could be personally liable and explaining uh, the consequences of that personal liability. Now, this is quite an important tool in the complainant's toolbox because it means that if you sue the company and it goes bust, the director uh, is then the subject to a personal injunction and he or she can't just simply set up all over again. But equally, that director can't just walk away from the dispute because their house could be on the line. Their personal assets could be on the line. They've got some skin in the game. And that can have a very serious effect on the dynamics of negotiation because they know they can't just bamboozle you in negotiation. They've got to take into account that they themselves are vulnerable. It may sound very aggressive, but it is actually quite a good way of getting a result from
2: the director on the other side. I, I don't know whether you've had a similar experience, Chris. I think it's something which is another tool for claimants in IP disputes that you don't always have the benefit of in other kinds of legal disputes because it is, I think, quite a common situation or quite a common scenario where effectively you're suing a one-man band someone who has set up their business has infringed your ip rights but is operating under or in the name of a limited company and in that scenario if you were just pursuing a simple debt claim for example against the company well if they know that they can avoid payment of that debt and simply wind down the company or let it be struck off they're going to behave in a very different way so if they realise that they are potentially liable for the cost of litigation personally, because obviously that, that has, can have a, an effect on them personally. And I think it's absolutely something which is worthwhile doing. And it's not absolutely always done, but it is, I think, a really useful tool. And that's as my experience too, I mean, when accusing a director of uh, personal involvement,
1: one does tend to tend to get a response fairly quickly from that director concerned if he or she has had proper legal advice. So, okay, so we've sent the initial letter and we've had a response and we've maybe tried to negotiate in correspondence some sort of result, some sort of resolution, but it's come to nothing. So we now need to think about suing. I mean, this is a big step for directors to take. One can threaten to sue but one is not under a legal obligation to follow through. Actually, even if one does sue, one can still withdraw proceedings. But once one issues and serves proceedings, then you can't withdraw the proceedings without at least offering to pay the other side's costs, unless they agree that costs simply lie where they fall. So where can we issue the proceedings? Well, proceedings for intellectual property disputes aren't normally issued in local county courts they don't have the jurisdiction normally either issued in the high court's patent list for the more serious cases or in the intellectual property and enterprise court and has been working now for about 10 years and before that was known as the Patents County Court. The beauty of the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, or or IPEC as we lawyers like to call it, insofar as any court can be, it's cheap, it's cheerful, it's very streamlined. The downside of the court, in the words of the presiding judge of the court, His Honour Judge Hakon, is that it delivers rough justice. It's designed just simply to get you from A to B, not in a nice gleaming BMW or Mercedes, but in a mini minor. But it gets you there without usually breaking down and far cheaper than the high court. Okay, thank you very much for listening to us. We'll be happy to answer any questions if you'd like to email them to us. Otherwise, have a good day. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyardlees or email us at IP at Appleyardlees.com.